So tonight we're beginning a, a short series in the book of Habakkuk. And this was mentioned from the pulpit a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, uh, that we're going to do this. And from the different comments I've had, uh, the impression I'm getting is that this is not a book that uh, people are that familiar with. Uh, so I'm going to make a few comments to start off with, just to kind of uh, orientate ourselves uh, into where this book is uh, in the Bible and to get a bit more uh, knowledge of it before we dive into uh, chapter one uh, shortly. Now, Habakkuk isn't like one of the big Old Testament books like Genesis or Psalms uh, or Isaiah that you hear a lot about sort of from week to week uh, from the pulpit in different ways. It's tucked away at the end of the Old Testament uh, with books like Nahum and Micah uh, and some other books round about it that are not as well known. I wonder if you could maybe turn with me uh, to the contents page uh, in your Bibles and uh, You'll see there, if you turn uh, quickly just to the, the contents page uh, at the front of your Bibles, uh, if it's the church one, you'll see a heading that says Old Testament and uh, all the Old Testament books uh, set out underneath. And the way the Old Testament works, certainly the second half of it, is that starting with Isaiah, uh, you have a group of books called the Major Prophets. And prophets in the Bible are people who speak on behalf of God to the people. And the Major Prophet books are Isaiah, just that list there, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, uh, and Daniel. And these books are lengthy, and they tell us a lot about Old Testament uh, history and theology, as well as the messages that the prophets brought uh, to uh, Israel and Judah and their neighbors on behalf of God. Now, where does Habakkuk uh, fit into the Old Testament? Well, Habakkuk is part of a group that comes after the major prophets, uh, known as the Minor Prophets. Uh, and if you look at the contents page again, uh, in order of their appearance in the Bible, uh, the Minor Prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, they're described as minor, uh, not because they're any less important than the Major Prophets, but because they're shorter in length. Uh, in fact, you could easily read them uh, in, a, in, in one sitting. It would be absolutely no problem. And together, they speak about uh, against Israel's drift away from God, and they set the stage for the new covenant, uh, a new promise that God will make with humanity uh, that will be ushered in in the New Testament in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This new covenant is the promise that God makes with humanity, that he will forgive sin, uh, that he will restore fellowship with those who heart, whose hearts are turned against him. Now, Habakkuk stands out from the many other prophets in the Old Testament in two ways. And, and the first one is this. I said that a prophet's job was to speak God's words on behalf of him to the people. But the first thing we're going to notice when we open up Habakkuk is that Habakkuk isn't actually speaking to the people. He's speaking directly to God. And then the second thing we're going to notice is about the tone of the book as we work through it these uh, next three Sunday evenings. Instead of preaching judgment like the other prophets, Habakkuk is asking God questions, really tough questions, and we'll see that he brings these questions to God in prayer, and that he finds consolation in God's strength and in God's power. And what Habakkuk shows us is that ancient believers wrestled with the same difficult questions about sin and evil and suffering that Christians ask today. Now, on the subject of wrestling, I, I want to talk about Habakkuk's name for a moment. I don't know if it's a name 
uh, you've, you've heard uh, any child being given? I've certainly not. Um, and the name Habakkuk comes from the Hebrew word to embrace. Now, when we think of the word embrace, I don't want you to think of a cuddle. Uh, you know those awkward side ones or a kind of full-on embrace with an old friend? We're not thinking that kind of embrace. Uh, think more about wrestling. Think of two uh, wrestlers embracing and you get a sense of the meaning of Habakkuk's name. Habakkuk is wrestling with God. And hence the name that I've given this three-part series is Wrestling with God in Prayer. And as we go through Habakkuk, we'll see Habakkuk pray three times to God. It's like we're getting a little look in on somebody's prayer diary. That's essentially what Habakkuk is like. And so let's begin now to see what Habakkuk is wrestling with God in prayer about as we read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 together. You'll find that on page 940 of the church Bibles. Let's read there from verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then the Lord's answer, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. I want to do two things tonight as we look at this passage. The first thing we're going to do is consider the question that Habakkuk's complaint it raises in the, those first four verses. And then secondly, we're going to consider the answer that God gives in response. So firstly, the question that Habakkuk's complaint raises is this. Is God's justice in doubt? Is God's justice in doubt. Please look uh, down with me there at cha uh, chapter 1, verse 2 again. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? We'll get to why Habakkuk is calling out for help in a minute, but the first thing that we can say is that he's clearly been calling out for help for some time. He's been calling out for help for some time, and God is not listening. God is not listening to his cry for help according to Habakkuk. 
And if you have any sense of imagination uh, or empathy, can you picture Habakkuk dejected and, and desperate as he comes before God again and again? Can you sense his weariness as he comes before God on his knees uh, or lying out uh, prostrate before God, calling out for God to help him? This is a man uh, who is desperate for help, and yet his God seems distant. He's clearly been crying out to God for some time, and yet nothing has changed. There's a bluntness and there's a boldness about the way that Habakkuk prays. He doesn't dress up how he's feeling. He's a prophet. That's what uh, verse 1 tells us. He's a man of God, and he knows that he can't hide anything from God, and so he doesn't waste his time trying to. But what is it, uh, what is this problem that he's been going on, that's been going on for so long, and that God doesn't seem to be helping with? This problem that God is not listening to. Well, there's some clues there in the second part of verse 2, and in uh, verse 3, and also down in verse 4. These verses say that there's violence. Uh, There's something Habakkuk has been telling God about, but has not saved him from it. There's injustice and there's wrongdoing. There's destruction and violence. Uh, There's strife and there's conflict. And this all sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's awful. What is going on in Habakkuk's life? What is going on in the world around him that is causing him to cry out to God like this? Well, on the one hand, it's a little bit uh, tricky to say because there's no dates given uh, in the book of uh, Habakkuk uh, to help us place uh, where it comes in the Bible story. And also, Habakkuk isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, so we can't get help from looking in other places. However, in verse 6, there's a reference to uh, the Babylonians, uh, to the Babylonians being raised up uh, by means of this prophecy. And so, if we're trying to place this, uh, this uh, book of Habakkuk in the Bible, we would pitch it around about uh, somewhere before the end of the 7th century BC, before Christ. And we know this because the Babylonian Empire, in verse 6, began when the Babylonian king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, came on the throne in 626 BC. But when Habakkuk is writing at this point, uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, we see that in the Lord's answer, it's something that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. The dreaded Assyrians who had uh, taken over the northern kingdom of Israel in uh, 722 BC, they're not in the picture here. They're not mentioned. It's all about the Babylonians, and it's all about them being raised up in verse 6. In 612 BC, Nineveh fell to the Babylonians, and in 587 BC, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And it seems that Habakkuk is writing somewhere in that 25-year period, after the fall of Nineveh, uh, but before the fall of Jerusalem. And if we go with this dating, uh, it seems that Habakkuk was a boy uh, during the reign of King Josiah. Now, we didn't get to King Josiah when we were studying uh, through uh, the book of 1 Kings earlier in this year. We only got far, as far as Jehoshaphat. Um, but if we'd kept going uh, from the end of 1 Kings into 2 Kings, we'd have eventually... Uh, gone through the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, and we'd got, have got to 
uh, Josiah there in 640 uh, BC. King Josiah, if you can make it out, is one of the two kind of good kings uh, later on uh, in the history of Judah. And he became king when he was only eight years old in 639 BC. And then when he was 16, he started this process of religious reform that changed the nation. In 2 Chronicles 34, we read, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, Jacob. In his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He burned the bones of the priests on the altars, so that the purge, so, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. And if you read more of King Josiah's story, you'll learn that he began to repair the temple, which had been allowed to fall into ruin. And as these repairs were happening, a priest finds the book of the law of the Lord. And when that book is read, Josiah and all the people were convicted of their sin. And then a revival breaks out across the land, and they begin to get back to doing what they'd been commanded to do. This was an incredible uh, sense, uh, an experience of real reformation. But then after Josiah died, things started to unravel. People began to get disillusioned with the reforms, and Judah went back to its evil ways. And you can read more of this uh, account in the Old Testament books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And things got progressively worse until the fall of Jerusalem in 587. And this was the age in which Habakkuk lived and in which he prophesied. He'd known the great days of revival under Josiah the boy king. And yet before his eyes now, the nation was falling spiritually and it was falling morally. And it seemed like God wasn't listening to his cry. God, in Habakkuk's eyes in these first few verses, uh, is inactive. Uh, He's not listening. And the result of that in verse 4 is that the law was paralyzed. It wasn't having any impact on the people of Judah The people uh, Habakkuk has in mind here, uh, just to be really clear, are the people of Judah. They'd abandoned King Josiah's uh, reforms and returned to their evil ways. They'd become selfish and greedy, living for themselves. And the result was, in verse 4 again, that justice never prevailed. This is such a contrast to the days of Josiah when the book of the law was found. And the people were convicted uh, of their sin. And yet, even amongst this evil people, there's a remnant, a small group of righteous people. We see that also in verse four, where it says the wicked hem in the righteous. They're, they're getting nowhere though. They're being hemmed in by these wicked people. And so this is Habakkuk's complaint. This is his heartfelt cry uh, towards God. And you see there's two main questions there really at the center of his complaint. How long, Lord? And then twice in verse three, Why? How long is this going to continue, Lord? And and why is it happening? And I think it's fair to say uh, that these two questions are probably quite common uh, as we approach God about injustice uh, or suffering that we might 
uh, be aware of. How long before you're going to respond, Lord? And why is it happening? These are both questions about God's control. I wonder if you have uh, similar thoughts as you look around the world today. Is God really in control? Is not an illegitimate question as we see what's happening. Take the country of Turkey, for example. The Apostle Paul uh, came from Tarsus, and uh, that's in Turkey. Timothy from Lystra, that's also in Turkey. Uh, Antioch, also in Turkey, is the place where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Turkey is also home to the seven churches in Asia where the revelation to John was sent. If you're into church history, you'll know that the, all of the first seven ecumenical councils, which are recognized by both the Eastern and the Western churches, were held in what is present-day Turkey. And the first one of these councils, the first council of Nicosia, held back in 325 AD, which gave us the Nicene Creed, and which is a hugely important uh, document explaining uh, essential definitions of the Christian faith, again took place uh, there in Turkey. Christianity has a long history in Turkey, and yet I've been uh, increasingly struck how unchristian it now seems. The percentage of Christians in Turkey fell from 20% in 1914 to 5.5% in 1927, and the figure now is 0.2%. And evangelicals, I think, make up something like 0.008%, according to Operation World. And Muslims make up more than 96%. If you speak to uh, Turkish Christians, they'll tell you that they can't wear a cross around their neck because of the consequences that might happen to them. If you listen to Orthodox uh, priests speaking about their experience in Turkey, they'll tell you of how young Muslims come in and shout Allah Akbar at them and then urinate and defecate in their churches. Over the years, Turkey's transformation from uh, the guardian of Christendom to uh, an unevangelized nation has been almost comprehensive. It's almost complete. For over a thousand years, uh, this area around Turkey was a bastion of Christendom, and now it's a, a stronghold of Islam. Is God really still in control in situations like that? What about uh, with Islamic State, the jihadist group that burst onto the scene around 2014? It's taken on large parts of Syria and Iraq. It's notorious for its brutality and uh, its mass killings and abductions and beheadings. And the group is just attracting more and more support throughout the Muslim world. I wonder if you, when you hear about uh, these goings on, does it cause you to wonder if God is still in control in this world? Going back even further, I wonder about when the economy crashed in 2008, when 9-11 happened, uh, when the Thai tsunami happened, uh, when the ash cloud came over Iceland, uh, when these hurricanes and storms hit the US and the Caribbean almost on a, a yearly basis, what about these bombs that keep going off in major cities? What about North Korea? Is God really still in control in this day and age? And so we're not immune to this question that Habakkuk asks. Maybe you know what it's like in other situations to cry out, how long, O oh Lord, 
Maybe you know what it's like to cry out to God again and again. Why? Why, Lord? This is the anguished cry of a man who loved justice but had seen it perverted and was now crying out to God against this evil. According to Habakkuk's logic, if we look carefully at what he's saying, it's not that God's unable, but that he's unwilling. It's not that he can't help, it's that he isn't helping. But is that really true? Is God really unwilling to answer Habakkuk's cry? Well, in verses 5 to 11, the Lord gives us a crystal clear answer. So if Habakkuk is asking the question, is God's justice in doubt? The answer that he gets back is this, no, God's justice will be displayed. And that's my, my second point, God's justice will be displayed. God answers Habakkuk in the most remarkable way. Probably not the way that Habakkuk uh, would have expected to hear. Maybe Habakkuk thought his cries to God would eventually, at some point, lead to God sending another revival like he'd experienced under Josiah's reign. But that's not how God answers on this occasion. Look with me again, please, at uh, verse 5. God says this, Look at the nations and watched and be utterly amazed. You see, God's going to do something in Habakkuk's day that really needs to be seen in order to be believed. You see, he says he's going to raise up the Babylonians against his own people. God is very aware of the corruption of his own people, Judah, and he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Judah. God will use this terrifying empire of Babylon to devour Judah because of their injustice and because of their evil. And what we've got here is this, God using the most ungodly nation, Babylon, to judge his own people. Now, a hundred years before Habakkuk was born, God had spoken to Hezekiah, another king of Judah, through the prophet Isaiah, and he said, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until now will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Just look with me at some of the ways that the Babylonians are described. Ruthless, impetuous, a feared and dreaded people, a law to themselves. I think there's a bit of irony going on there with that last one, a law unto themselves. Because they're only a law unto themselves in an earthly sense. They're not beyond God's control, as he makes clear when he uses them to punish Judah. You see, God's answer to, Hezekiah, to Habakkuk's question is this. My justice is not in doubt, Habakkuk. My judgment is coming, but it's going to be in my time, and it's going to be in my way. You see, God can punish a bad nation with a worse one. And God did punish a bad nation with a worse one. It's easy to understand why God prepares Habakkuk for this news by saying, watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. 
It'd be a bit like today if God uh, started using ISIS or North Korea or some other superpower that we judge to be more evil than us in Scotland and the UK in order to judge us. Babylon was not a great example of Christian virtue. We see that in the verses uh, 8 to 11. They're a fierce people. They devour like swooping eagles. They come intent on violence. They're described as hordes. Uh, They've got no respect for authority. They're all guilty people. And yet God used them to administer justice against his own people. When Habakkuk heard these words, uh, he had no need to wonder any longer if God's justice was in doubt. It was coming. In fact, in a decade or so after Habakkuk wrote, Babylon conquered Judah and took away its people off into exile. Punishment had indeed come. It's incredible reading, really, isn't it? Hard to, hard to believe, hard to make sense of and get our heads around that God would use wicked nations uh, to punish his own. In Isaiah it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declare the Lord. And I, I've used that in my own prayers uh, and I've, I'm sure you have as well. And I sometimes wonder if um, we're fine with that as a principle, if we're talking about things that God might do that are great and good and positive uh, in, to our mind. Uh, but I wonder uh, if we feel the same way when we look at the details of a story like this. It's one thing to declare the principle in Isaiah. It's another thing to embrace the detail set out in Habakkuk. When God's ways don't seem understandable or when they don't fit with our definition of good. Maybe you're um, new to church and uh, maybe new to the Bible and maybe never looked uh, at this sort of passage before, well, you're in good company because it's it, from, as I said earlier, I don't think many people spend much time in Habakkuk. Uh, you can probably understand even from these few verses uh, the prophet's questions. He'd known great times under Josiah and now everything around him uh, was a complete mess. God and God's word were being neglected and it was resulting in violence and injustice and all of this was being tolerated by Judah's corrupt leaders. Even if you're not familiar uh, with the Bible, I'm sure you can understand why Habakkuk is raising these questions with God. It's not unreasonable for him to come to God uh, with these questions and ask him why he's letting all of this happen. You see, he expects God to act, to show his power, and he expects things to happen differently. But notice with me that Habakkuk doesn't turn his back on God and all this. He turns to him again and again. That's the whole point of his cry. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? He's coming back again and again. He doesn't come on his high horse. He comes humbly. He's not proud. He's pleading. He's pleading that God would act. And I wonder if you've gone through difficult situations, if you've ever thought, um, well, if there is a God, Uh, he doesn't care about me. Or if there is a God, he doesn't care about this famine or this war or this other disaster. Well, this passage shows that God will deal with violence and greed and all the destruction and problems in this world, and he will punish. He will punish uh, all the wrong things that people have done to you uh, or that you've witnessed on the news, 
and he'll also punish all the wrong things that you've done yourself. The Bible teaches that God is perfectly holy and righteous and will punish every sin. And the, the truth is that Habakkuk isn't quite right in verse 3. It's not really true that God tolerates wrong. He always deals with it, but maybe just not in our time. And he waited for a certain time for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world. And when Jesus came, God showed his commitment to justice and to holiness. And if Habakkuk, I'm really struggling with uh, this this word, hopefully by the third sermon uh, I've got right. If Habakkuk thought God's answer to his cry for justice was amazing, then his once and for all answer in the Lord Jesus Christ was even more spectacular. Christ died on a cross because God would not tolerate wrongdoing, what we call sin. Romans 3 says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received with faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, God's justice was always going to be displayed. It was absolutely never in doubt. When God came himself in the person of Christ, he ensured that justice would not continue to be perverted and that wickedness would not win. And as Christ rose from the dead, three days later, he showed that sin and death would be defeated permanently. And if that is new for you tonight, we would love to talk to you about that uh, after the service or chat to the person that you maybe came along with tonight. But if you're a Christian here tonight, I hope that this passage has, has done two things. I hope it's humbled you and at the same time raised your estimation of God. The honesty that Habakkuk shows is evident for all of us to see. He's lamenting all that has happened in his nation. And the fact that he comes to God with his questions and uh, with his confusion about God's, God being seemingly inactive is actually a demonstration of his faith. It's actually a demonstration of his belief in God's sovereignty. And I want to encourage you, if you have lots of questions and you're bringing them to, uh, to God just now, then that is a show of faith. You're basically saying, I'm not the one that can fix this, but I know the one who can. I wonder if you do uh, pray like that. Do you know that you can approach God with the same honesty that Habakkuk shows? And do you pray such outward-looking prayers as Habakkuk? It's good to pray for uh, our health and um, any big events coming up in the future, But what percentage of our prayers are about what's happening on a national and an international scale? About what's happening inside the church worldwide and outside of it? Our passage tonight helps us think about our trust in God. Habakkuk prayed and God replied, proving Habakkuk's doubts were wrong about him not listening. He does listen. And God's answers show that God wasn't going to tolerate wrongdoing or let justice be perverted indefinitely. God's justice would be displayed. And yet what stands out is that God didn't answer in the way that Habakkuk would have expected. 
as I said earlier, maybe Habakkuk was kind of hoping that uh, maybe there'd be another revival like under Josiah's time. A mass outpouring of grief over sin, a humbling of God's people, and a turning back to the book of the law again. But that isn't what God did in this situation. We need to learn from Habakkuk's experience of life in Judah and uh, Job's experience earlier in the Old Testament about personal suffering and the thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament and come to understand the different means that God uses in our world. Now, you would not be uh, human to look at God's answer in chapter 1 and not have some questions about God. Uh, maybe you've got some questions about God because it, it's kind of similar to the things you're going through personally. You've got questions about his goodness, questions about his power, uh, even questions about his existence. Well, the good thing is that Habakkuk has more questions and we'll come back to them uh, next week. So, so come back for that. But what I, what I want to say tonight is that in these situations where we have these big questions, what we need to do is talk to ourselves now, I know that talking to yourself in certain situations uh, might come across as madness, um, but talking to yourself is actually just basic Christianity. We need to take our questions about God, or maybe even our bad thoughts about God, and bring them to Him and talk to ourselves to say, I think this about God, but but do I have it right? Have I really understood? Is it true what the Bi based on what the Bible says about God? Talking to ourselves in this situation is basic Christianity. Take your thoughts, search the scriptures, speak with a friend, and find out if your thoughts actually align with what the, the, the Bible says about God. Don't just assume that because a thought has passed through your head that it's true. It's often not. But what the Bible says about God is true. It's always true. And that's why we need to search it and know it and speak it to ourselves. Let's think collectively for a moment. What about us as a church family, not just as, as individual uh, Christians? I think what this passage shows us is, is hugely helpful uh, for our life together as a church family. If we as a church had the same trust that Habakkuk had, if we prayed persistently like Habakkuk did, if we prayed the sorts of prayers that Habakkuk did and accepted God's answer, even if it's not uh, what we would have wished for, we'll be very distinct from the world round about us that is watching us. You see, the world outside these four walls, uh, by and large, does not believe in God and does not listen to the promises that he has made. But if we do, if we take these promises seriously, if we speak with God honestly, we will look very different to our neighbors and our classmates and our colleagues and our family and our friends. If this kind of trust is displayed across our church family, great things can happen. Our prayer meetings would be fuller. There are multiple times you can pray during the week on a Sunday before both services and at other points in the week that you'd be very welcome to. If we display the same trust as Habakkuk in God together, we'll see us get closer and closer to that 20% increase in giving that we're, we're really praying about. 
as a church, if we show the trust that Habakkuk had, prayed the sort of prayers that Habakkuk prayed, accept God's answers, even if it's not in a way that makes it easy for us to trust him, then we can have a great impact on Edinburgh and beyond. You see, this isn't the end of Habakkuk's complaint to God. You see, the, the answer that God gives, as I said a moment ago, prompts more questions for Habakkuk. And God willing, we'll meet again next Sunday night to think more about this second complaint that Habakkuk has and also the answer that, that God gives. But in this coming week, what I want to do is to urge you uh, to come before this all-powerful, holy, awesome God in the sort of deep and honest prayer that Habakkuk did. God, need, God may not respond uh, in the way that you expect, but he is listening. He wants to hear the cries of his people. In this uh, book of Habakkuk, God's justice was not in doubt. He would not tolerate wrong. His justice would be displayed. And through this, God taught Habakkuk that he could be trusted, that he could be uh, believed as being good and faithful, and that he could be relied upon. Let's pray together.